I think one of the great things about Governor Allen's presentation was is it really gave us a kind of almost comprehensive look at what we're going to be talking about on the conference. And basically, he touched on all the main points. So now this is our opportunity at this point now to step up and to begin to look at each of these areas in detail. And we're going to start for this discussion. We're going to start with the one that he mentioned is one of the key ones with regard to both uh, industrial costs, but also in terms of in terms of quality of life, and that is the area of electricity, and also the area of natural gas and infrastructure. And I'm very pleased that we were able to have here two very leading experts to talk about this. These two aspects of our discussion. Our our two our two panelists are Michelle Bloodworth, Executive Director, External Affairs for MISO Energy. MISO or MISO? MISO. It is MISO, okay. Because when I Googled, I kept finding out a lot of soup recipes, but I wasn't really sure. We have a lot, getting, you know, a lot of people who have MISO, but, but MISO is correct. Uh, Michelle joined MISO in 2015 as the Executive Director of External Affairs, and uh, she over provides oversight on MISO's communications efforts, as well as stakeholder relations and client relations initiatives. Before that, Michelle was Senior Director of Market Development at America's Natural Gas Alliance, an association with which Hudson has had a close relationship, uh, which is also part of the way in which we also like to think about the issues of natural gas and the future economy and future economic, economic direction. Richard Cruz is Vice President of Regulatory and Chief Compliance Officer for Spectra Energies, U.S. transmission business. He's responsible for the development and management of the company's regulatory strategy and action with FERC, which, as many of you will know, is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that oversees and directs the grid. And also directs the pipeline group's position in state proceedings. Each of the states serves by the company's pipelines. He's a busy man. Uh, as a result of that. He's also responsible for managing the company's involvement in the North American Energy Standards Board and serves on the North American Energy Standards Board's Board of Directors. Uh, our conference that we was here uh, on March 22nd on the geopolitics of America's shale revolution, we touched on the issue of a natural, uh, of a North American energy block, the components and elements. We had a fascinating panel on just that subject. And what I'm hoping is, is that Richard Cruz can help said, shed some light on those subjects as well. And so without further ado, do we know who wants to start first? Michelle's going to start. Michelle's going to start. Well, thank you. Uh, it certainly is a pleasure and an opportunity to be uh, at the first time at the Hudson Institute. Um, as all of you will soon find out, uh, I do have a southern accent, even though I live in Carmel, Indiana, uh, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, as I listen to, to Governor uh, Allen, certainly uh, the natural gas and the shale gas revolution uh, is having a profound impact uh, on the power generation industry uh, and really all aspects of the power uh, generation industry. Uh, 
but from a MISO uh, perspective, uh, it certainly has benefited uh, our members, whether you're a vertically integrated utility or you're a merchant generator, uh, in those resources uh, and our goal of providing uh, and ensuring reliability of the grid, uh, it has helped uh, our members uh, as they are facing, uh, as Governor Allen mentioned, uh, many environmental mandates. Uh, we are seeing a volatile uh, and a very different change, uh, especially in the MISO footprint uh, of the generation mix and the mix of the fuel resources. Uh, and as we're seeing more intermittent, whether that's uh, solar or wind, uh, really the ability of natural gas to provide that flexibility, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, growth in the use of natural gas and even supporting uh, intermittent and renewable generation. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we're also seeing them take advantage uh, of the lower price natural gas, uh, and that is certainly driving up uh, from a generation standpoint the amount of megawatt hours now that are coming from natural gas uh, versus other fuel sources and, and certainly seeing a lot of retirement of coal. Uh, as Arthur uh, mentioned in my introduction, uh, most of uh, my long career has been in the natural gas industry, and so I always joke with former uh, FERC Commissioner Moeller that I took gas electric harmonization uh, to a different level and decided to join the electric industry. Uh, I think what has been an eye-opener for me, because I've been in the natural gas industry for 25 years, uh, is there is so much planning and coordination. I thought I knew a lot about electricity uh, involved in the natural gas power generation side until I came to work at MISO. Uh, but the electricity industry and the challenges that we are facing as we try to integrate uh, not only uh, natural gas, uh, but intermittent uh, renewables, both wind and solar, uh, it is a very complex industry. And so having long-term planning and coordination uh, and I'm very lucky, uh, and my friend over here, Richard Cruz, and I have served on several panels, uh, but really uh, the coordination that's going to take place is going to be much greater as those industries, both the electric and the natural gas, uh, are more aligned and integrated and hopefully uh, harmonized in the future. Uh, but Richard and Spectre Energy has certainly been one of the most aggressive uh, pipeline companies that I've had the opportunity to work with over my years uh, of service on the gas side uh, and really trying to be aggressive uh, in constrained areas and develop uh, because uh, we all know we have an abundance uh, of natural gas, but being able to get it delivered to the point of use where it is needed uh, we are going to need a lot more, uh, not only infrastructure, but pipeline products and services. And so uh, he'll certainly share with you uh, the perspective uh, from the pipeline side. A little bit about uh, who is MISO and, and what do we do? What do these independent system operators do? Uh, at MISO, we are, uh, from a geographic standpoint and from a capacity standpoint, uh, we are the largest. We have the largest organized market in the country. Uh, we span all the way from uh, Manitoba uh, all the way to Louisiana. Uh, so we serve not only the Midwest, uh, but with the uh, uh, entrance of Entergy into our market, uh, we now have assets in MISO South, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, our footprint, uh, as you look at uh, all of the ISO, RTOs, whether that's New England, PJM, CalISO, 
or, or MISO, uh, we are unique uh, as it relates to natural gas uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one, MISO is primarily vertically integrated. And so by that, I mean we have the opportunity, MISO does, to collaborate with our utilities and with our state regulators, uh, public service or public utility commissioners, uh, to really make sure that we have uh, firm capacity, we have infrastructure, we have a regulatory a model uh, very different from uh, which Richard will, will speak to, I'm sure, uh, in the New England and the Northeast that allows us uh, to, to have the, the regulatory and the policy structure to fund uh, long-haul interstate uh, pipeline capacity. So we do spend a lot of time making sure that uh, utilities and policymakers uh, have appropriate information to make those important decisions to make sure that when that gas generator is called upon in a five minutes notice, uh, that that gas is delivered uh, and that electricity is just as reliable uh, as it was when it was being generated uh, from a coal plant. Uh, the other unique benefit of MISO is we pretty much have access to any uh, shale basin uh, in the United States, whether that's North Dakota, he mentioned the Bakken, whether that's in Louisiana, the Fayetteville Shale, whether that's kind of the granddaddy of them all, the Marcellus or the Utica. Uh, we pretty much have, uh, we are the crossroads for the majority of all of the pipeline network. Uh, what has really changed in the gas industry, and Richard will speak to it as well, is now pipelines are bi-directional. So we can move gas east to west. We can move gas west to east. We can move it from the Gulf. We can move it down. Uh, that creates challenges, but it also creates a lot of flexibility. Uh, one of the benefits of a regional and, and why people join an organized market is because we pool the resources in all of these 15 states. Uh, that provides a lot of economy of, of scale. So we have the ability when we're bringing in a lot of wind, say, from the Dakotas, uh, our other footprint benefits from that because we try to maximize all of the generation resources to make sure that consumers uh, were providing the lowest price electricity uh, given the differences in those resources, uh, but being able to manage and to understand the limitations, say, of natural gas on a peak winter day uh, is going to be more and more important uh, to MISO moving forward. What's kind of important about this slide is uh, certainly you can see uh, we have a tremendous uh, pipeline network uh, both in MISO South and in, in MISO North Central, uh, but they're very different as well. Uh, in MISO South, uh, Entergy and many of the generators in the South have a lot of experience with natural gas. Uh, most of the generators, I'd say 40%, are connected to more than one pipeline, so they have a lot of flexibility uh, not only in interstate pipelines that cross state to state, but intrastate. Uh, there's a massive amount of interstate pipelines uh, in the South and especially in uh, the Texas footprint, uh, which allows different flexibilities than we have in MISO North Central. And so in MISO North Central and in the Midwest, where we've had uh, a lot of very large coal generating facilities, we're seeing uh, many of those because of environmental regulations, but also because of low price uh, shale gas uh, retire, some of those even sooner than expected. Uh, many of those, what's driving it though, is really the economics. Uh, and much of that is being replaced uh, by natural gas and by renewables. And so the north to central footprint, 
we're hoping we really gain from the experience of the South. But the big difference, uh, as I know very well, between the South and the North is uh, the South doesn't have the ferocious winters that the North does. And so when uh, most of our, our challenges and what we're trying to be proactive and, and work with Richard and other pipeline entities is really on those cold peak winter days uh, when you're home heating, uh, you're either using it, hopefully, for heating, water heater, or cooking, uh, when, when on that peak winter day, we're really competing, uh, entities are competing with who gets that gas. Does the residential homeowner get it, or does a power generator get it? Uh, and so that's where we're really uh, trying to have a lot of communication uh, with the gas industry so we both understand the limitations and the opportunities to make sure on peak winter day that everybody can get it. But in order for that to happen, you've got to have the physical assets, one of those being uh, adequate pipeline infrastructure, uh, to be able to serve uh, both of those, especially as the intermittent load grows. Just looking at uh, both kind of the MISO North Central and, and MISO South, uh, probably no surprise uh, that the amount of uh, generation, both from the amount of kilowatt hours generated and also from installed capacity, we are seeing huge uh, increases in natural gas generation. The majority of what is uh, we call in our interconnection queue uh, is primarily natural gas. Uh, although we're seeing a lot of wind uh, as well and, and beginning to see an entrance uh, of more, uh, not so much rooftop solar, but uh, more utility solar, uh, especially in the Midwest uh, and the South footprint. Uh, primarily, though, in the MISO North Central, the percentages have been more single digit. And so when those numbers are expected uh, to really uh, triple or even quadruple, uh, the operation of that generation and the challenges that natural gas can plan if we don't uh, plan for it accordingly uh, certainly can be uh, uh, pretty dramatic. Uh, we're also beginning to see uh, a lot of increase uh, e even in the amount of hours that our generation runs in the MISO uh, South footprint. And so there's lots of discussions about does it make sense uh, to move more power from the so south to the north. If we have a lot of shale gas and a lot of physical assets, uh, how can our footprint maximize uh, even the physical assets that different states or different regions have really for the benefit uh, of the full, whole footprint? And that's really what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So MISA really has three functions. Uh, most all of the utilities turn their generation over to us and so on a, on a day and an hour on a minute by minute basis we're choosing which generation is dispatched and which units run across our entire footprint. Uh, we also run an electricity market so we sent we set electricity prices on an hour and a minute by minute basis and then the third function that we provide which is uh, different than uh, the gas industry uh, in the way that it is regulated uh, is in we, we manage uh, transmission planning process uh, which really determines what high voltage uh, transmission gets built uh, so we can move the generation uh, to the places uh, where the load growth is occurring uh, or hopefully to eliminate uh, congestion not only in our footprint uh, but from all of the other uh, sister organizations and seams 
uh, that we manage throughout the United States. There's been a large discussion, uh, certainly in our footprint, and we're doing a lot of modeling on the clean power plan. Uh, what I would like to emphasize, however, is even, even if the stay uh, uh, becomes in effect, and even if we don't have uh, the clean power plan, we are still uh, planning for and expect to see a massive amount of growth uh, in both natural gas and renewables because there's a lot of other environmental regulations that our members uh, obviously are having to comply with, all the way from uh, national ozone ambient air st standards uh, to the mercury and air toxics rule uh, to the cross-state air pollution rule. Uh, so the only thing uh, really CPP does, uh, it probably makes that timeline a little bit sooner. Uh, it certainly makes the carbon standards more stringent. Uh, it probably is going to drive more renewables, but we see that transition uh, occurring uh, no matter whether the CPP uh, moves forward or not. And so we are aggressively planning uh, for that change in our generation uh, portfolio uh, as we speak. So one of the areas uh, that certainly uh, we're seeing dramatic growth, as I mentioned, is wind. Uh, so we are seeing a lot of wind growth in our system, which is very different than solar. Typically, we can predict when the sun is not shining. Uh, but what we're seeing with a uh, massive amount of growth uh, in the wind area is it's typically uh, the wind is not blowing. Uh, what we're seeing is when our load is picking up. And so the ability within a moment's notice uh, to be able to supply power when the wind is not blowing is typically we're relying on natural gas. Uh, natural gas certainly has the flexibility and the fast ramping capability as long as it has uh, the storage and the pipeline infrastructure and the physical assets in order for us to call on it in a very short notice. Uh, it does create a lot of issues, which is why we're communicating with companies like Richards uh, when, when, when we can't really give them notice and they can't plan and generators don't have adequate time to line up supply and buy their gas. Uh, and so there are new types of products and services uh, as we uh, look at electricity products and services that we're going to need uh, in, in a different way moving forward uh, from the natural gas industry. We, you know, in the past when I represented the producer group, uh, you know, we would kind of argue, well, if natural gas was operating the same way as coal, as baseload generation, uh, then some of these physical assets aren't as important uh, because you pretty much know every day how much natural gas is going to run. But we really want natural gas. We need it to do more than that. We need it to be peaking generation. We need it to provide ramping capability, and we're going to see it operating more as baseload. Uh, so really, uh, the gas industry and the electric industry are going to have to learn a lot more about each other and also understand the limitations of one another and how physically electricity and natural gas, uh, they do move and are delivered very differently. doesn't mean that we can't better align uh, and we can't find products and services on both sides, but we also have to appreciate uh, that we are different, and having a coal pile uh, right there on site is very different than having a storage facility uh, that is miles and miles away, and gas doesn't move as quickly as electricity, and so it just has to be planned for accordingly uh, so it can provide the same reliability uh, as other fuel sources have in the past.
some of the things that uh, are, are, are really different, uh, and certainly all of you should be watching, is uh, now looking at uh, both electricity, looking at transmission infrastructure and natural gas infrastructure. So an example would be we're doing a lot of modeling to say, is it better uh, to, to, to bring in remote generation and build transmission uh, to move that electricity, or does it make more sense to locate generation closer to pipeline infrastructure, uh, or is it better uh, to build gas pipeline infrastructure? Is that a lower cost than, than doing transmission, than doing gas by the wires? Uh, it's very case-specific, uh, and it all boils down to economics uh, and what is the rate impact of either one, uh, but really being able to examine uh, the synergies between transmission and gas pipeline infrastructure. They both have the same challenges uh, as it relates to environmental permitting uh, and, and obviously some pushback uh, either from a high voltage line. Uh, typically though gas pipeline infrastructure has a shorter lead time uh, than transmission. Uh, the biggest difference uh, in transmission is under the Federal Power Act and ISORTO uh, has the ability uh, to, to determine how those costs uh, with our stakeholders are allocated and to get that funded on the transmission side. Uh, under the Federal Power Act, uh, MISO, as an example, doesn't have the authority, and, and Richard will speak to how different it is to get pipeline infrastructure funded versus transmission. Uh, but one of the things I think you'll see moving forward is a lot of discussion uh, about how we look at those more uh, systematically uh, to take advantage of both. Uh, we're also looking at, as we look at new electricity products, we have a new one we're launching on a fast ramping capability. How can we develop pipeline products and services that will better align with the electricity products uh, that we're also managing and, and our members are buying on a day or an hour by hour basis? Uh, and then really trying to examine uh, where we have a lot of generation behind a local distribution company, uh, which is an LDC, moving it to your home, uh, how do we better coordinate when the generation is behind them uh, to really understand the transparency of uh, when that gas is going to be sent to the home heating uh, load instead of the power generation load, and how do, we, how do we both coordinate together to make sure we don't have interruptions on either side? Uh, so a homeowner can get their gas, uh, but the generator also can plan accordingly uh, when they might see a, a curtailment as an example. Uh, so a lot of different dynamics, uh, but a lot of opportunities uh, for both industries uh, to benefit. So I know we're a little bit short on time, and I certainly want to leave uh, ample opportunity for my good friend over here, Richard, and so we will... Uh, uh, allow time for questions at the end, but I very much uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with all of you this morning. Well, good morning, and while the presentation is coming up, I, I would say Michelle gave me a lot to talk about that I didn't necessarily plan on talking about, but. Uh, <laughs> The gas-electric industries uh, talk to each other in the past only when there's problems. 
We have a history of uh, supplying a, a gas to uh, electric generators, uh, and it's a long history. Uh, it's a tortured history, in fact. Uh, during the gas shortages of the late 60s and the 70s, uh, local distribution companies uh, made the arguments that gas was too precious to be burned as boiler fuel. And we had a federal policy against uh, using natural gas and boiler fuels. And then the industry went out and found an abundance of gas uh, in the 80s. Another abundance of gas uh, in this decade. So the electric industry has relied on gas. It has been pushed away by gas. And we're back to a phase that I think is going to be a long-term of industry working together to provide reliability to all parties. As I said, though, uh, we talk to each other when there's problems. And four or five years ago, there was a cold snap. There's a polar vortex. Weather gets high. And the relationship between the industry has grown up such that uh, for the, the vast majority of the gas-fired generators, capacity that's under contract by local distribution companies. And that has worked very well 90% of the time. It gets really cold and LDCs need their capacity. We find that there's a shortfall. So gas electric issues have been, in my mind, really bundled into a couple of areas. There's communication. I mean, do we know how to talk to each other? Uh, do we know the difference between an open valve and an open connection? And one means gas is flowing and one means electricity is not. Uh, do we know who to call? And believe it or not, that is uh, something that it took the prodding of the commission to get us to talk to each other, to establish protocols about communications. There's a lot of concern about sharing market information and those communications because we both are operating uh, transportation grids that deliver a product and there's other market participants and how do we share that in a way that is transparent but, it, but also recognizes some of it is very confidential. But that issue in my mind has been checked off. We know how to communicate. Uh, scheduling and coordination, uh, you know, the gas industry uh, had a gas day that started at 9 o'clock. Uh, standardized across North America. Uh, the electric industry has an electric day that starts at midnight, depending on the region you're located in. And if you're a gas-fired generator uh, trying to operate in both worlds, you're in two separate days talking to people about two separate uh, scheduling procedures, and the end result is you're always in trouble with somebody. Either you didn't schedule gas and the RTO, ISO is making you schedule gas, and you can't get gas, but so now you're trying to borrow, quote, borrow gas. Uh, or you've overscheduled on the gas pipeline because uh, you thought you were going to be scheduled. The RTO doesn't need you, and now you're trying to get rid of gas, and you're being yelled at. So being a gas-fired generator is a very challenging operation. They're in the middle. They're torn between two different paradigms. And... Uh, there's been a lot of work on doing that. The commission uh, has just, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has just completed a review of the gas day scheduling process. Uh, the interstate pipelines have just implemented 
a new scheduling paradigm starting April 1. Uh, I wouldn't have picked April 1 for a major change of scheduling, but uh, that's when we went, and it went, uh, as far as I understand, pretty flawlessly, and uh, we're providing more flexibility and scheduling to the electric industry. The commission asked the, uh, the RTOs and ISOs to go through a similar process, and depending on the facts of each uh, RTO, they made changes as they thought was appropriate to improve scheduling and coordination. But the point I want to make is we talk about communication, we talk about scheduling only when there's a shortage of pipeline capacity or infrastructure. That is the cause of the need for all this communication coordination. And communication and coordination is great, it's essential, but it doesn't create additional pipeline capacity. Uh, as Michelle pointed out, I mean, we see uh, deliveries to gas-fired generators, and these are generators directly attached to our pipelines, uh, increasing uh, year after year. Uh, the percentages on these slides at the top is the difference between that slide and what we saw this year. So from a five-year average uh, in the first quarter, we're up 67% this last year versus the five-year average. The prior year, we're up 39%. So that's how you read the slide. That's true on both Texas Eastern, which is one of our interstate pipelines that runs from Texas, the border with Mexico, all the way up to New York City. And Algonquin Gas Transmission is a New England pipeline that basically runs from New York City to Boston. And uh, Algonquin and New England has certainly been in the headlines for gas electric coordination. Uh, there's tremendous challenges uh, in New England. Uh, there's been a tremendous switch to natural gas. That's good. Uh, our pipelines are running full. And when I say full, I don't mean full when it's cold. I mean full in the summer, uh, full in springtime, full in the winter, full year-round. If you don't have a firm contract or a derivative of a firm contract, you are basically not getting your gas scheduled into New England. So the problem is lack of infrastructure. The challenge is how do you build infrastructure? And uh, just in terms of gas-fired generation, you saw how they were growing uh, in terms of their load on the two pipelines. Uh, on Texas Eastern, uh, the generators have about 20% of their winter peak covered by firm contracts. The rest of it is being used basically on loan by LDCs. Uh, the LDCs release it uh, under the commission's uh, capacity release process. Uh, it allows a more efficient utilization of the pipeline, but when it gets cold, 80% of the gas-fired generators, in terms of their usage, is at risk of being interrupted. And when that happens unexpectedly, Michelle gets very upset. And uh, we are kind of like scratching our heads saying, what's the problem? They're interruptible. You, you understand what interruptible means. And they don't, or they didn't. And, and that's really the truth. I mean, uh, they do not look at these generators as being interruptible. They're supposed to run when they're asked to run. And uh, the problem is they haven't made upstream contract commitments. 
depending on, on Algonquin, it's even worse, 16% of the winter peak. And it's Algonquin that is seeing a lot of, in New England, that's seeing a lot of the challenges in terms of gas electric coordination, communication. So if the issue is infrastructure, uh, what are the consequences of not having that infrastructure? And this really wasn't coordinated with uh, MISO here, but uh, this is a chart uh, in terms of the graphics that came out of the ISO New England uh, recent report in which they're talking about the impact of pipeline infrastructure constraints. And their point is that New England is very competitive from an electric price standpoint with MISO in the summer months. In the winter months when the pipeline constraints become predominant because the LDCs are pulling more and more of their capacity back, prices flare up because natural gas is the price setting mechanism in New England. It's the uh, marginal cost and as gas into the region becomes tighter, uh, prices go up and the region pays tremendously more. The New, uh, New England ISO has managed this uh, reliability issue as we've cut back uh, gas-fired generators uh, by, and, and this is surprising in some respects, they pay oil generators to stand by to turn on. So in, instead of burning natural gas, the cleaner fuel, but it's not able to get into the market, they're relying on uh, oil generators and imported LNG uh, to meet that difference. And, and they've been able to do that, but it's at a cost, a cost both in price and in environmental impacts. This gas electric contracting uh, issue is most predominantly a problem in the PJM, uh, New England markets, other parts of the market that are more vertically integrated, uh, as much of a challenge. We see pipeline services, new pipeline additions being built to serve markets in the south, Florida. Uh, MISO region uh, is actually benefiting to a very large extent by the fact that one, their electric transmission lines and generators lay on top of the gas fields and the producers are anxious to get the gas out of the ground so they're signing up for a significant amount of new pipeline capacity to move it to markets. But if you're away from the producing areas, like New England, uh, the challenge is who is going to sign up for the contracts? Uh, the independent power generators uh, make a very sound economic uh, comment that they cannot afford to sign up for 20-year contracts when they only get one-year commitments out of the electric markets. Uh, you see the logic of their concern, but who is going to sign up is, has been the biggest challenge, the biggest debate, one that is ongoing in New England as we speak. The, uh, the, the load and service characteristics that the uh, generators present uh, can be very strikingly different than what pipelines are accustomed to. Uh, Michelle touched on some of the reasons, the rapid ramp up in their deliveries, the uh, fact that some of them come on and then they go off. Uh, they're different. It's not impossible for a pipeline to serve them. Uh, 
we've made a lot of accommodations uh, to uh, meet the needs of the electric generators. Uh, Spectra Energy is one of a few pipelines that actually schedules gas on an hourly basis. Uh, so we're scheduling gas for any given day. Uh, we give a generator about 42 different hourly nominations because they start a day ahead to, to fine-tune their deliveries. Uh, we make non-rateable deliveries, and, and that is a phrase that means they get more than a uniform percentage of their gas in one hour versus mm -hmm. others, which is important to the uh, RTOs and ISOs. So the pipelines can uh, provide the services that the generators need. Uh, infrastructure can be built that will provide any flexibility that they need. The challenge is, and there's really two, is finding a customer and then getting it permitted and built. And uh, the timelines for uh, permitting are, are fairly predictable. Uh, currently, we're under constant pressure to uh, from various uh, opposition groups that tend to prolong it slightly, but uh, you can make your planning horizons and, and make a decisions, but we're not one year away. We're not two years away if you're talking about major pipelines. We're three to four, uh, and if you add in the commercial negotiations, maybe five years away from uh, uh, adding infrastructure uh, from the day you start in saying, well, I want to build infrastructure. Uh, I get the question often, if you see that there's a need or additional pipeline infrastructure, and this is true in New England, well, why don't you just build it? And that's not the economic model. That's not the regulatory model. Uh, we are not permitted by FERC uh, to build without contracts. And quite frankly, given the, the, the uh, pricing structure, we wouldn't build without contracts in any event because these are 20-year long-term uh, commitments that we need in order to, to raise the capital. Uh, the LDCs are building uh, across the country. Uh, it's been a tremendous infrastructure build-out uh, by both Spectra Energy as well as other pipelines. Producers are signing up for capacity. Uh, generators uh, or uh, their utility owners uh, in some parts of the country are signing up for capacity. But in the Northeast, the debate continues to be appropriate, and uh, it's a challenge both in PJM and uh, New England. And with that, I will close with an optimistic statement that we think there's a solution, and it's Access Northeast slide. And it gives you the services we're willing to provide generators if someone who has the credit to stand behind it was willing to sign up for a contract. Thank you. TX Amos, National Defense University. Neither of you mentioned um, industrial use of natural gas feedstock. How much of a problem is that for the infrastructure, or do they simply build them close enough to the source that it's not an issue? Uh, it can be an issue. Uh, I mean, it's just like any other uh, service uh, component. They need to have uh, uh, some secure access to pipeline capacity. Uh, most of them are being served uh, 
by marketers. Uh, and generally, they're located either behind uh, local distribution companies or they're historically where they were at various times. So there's usually capacity going by them. And it's just a question of uh, them securing a supply. The pipeline business, uh, we're not in the supply business. I mean, people come to us and, you know, it's a two-step process. You have to both have capacity and you have to have a natural gas supplier putting gas into the pipeline uh, to get gas out of it. But uh, industrials, if they are not in the appropriate location, uh, it, they can need to have a capacity expansion uh, to serve them. And that will either be done by a local distribution company as part of their service territory, or they'll have to do it independently. The only thing I would add from a power generation standpoint is industrial load is, is typically uh, pretty consistent. You know, it's more 24-hour-a-day uh, load, so it, it typically... Uh, doesn't have the ramping and the cycling uh, that some of the other load that we're experiencing behind our utility. So from that standpoint, it's a little bit easier to manage on the power side. There's a gentleman in the middle, too. We got, we got your My name is Ellen Mendelson. Uh, I'm just a part-time resident of Washington, D.C. and Vermont. My question to you is, why is it so difficult to get pipeline, gas pipelines in Vermont? Most of us who live there <laughs> pay for oil or propane, both of which are twice as expensive as gas. We would love to have gas pipelines, but even though we appeal to our senators, Messrs. Leahy and, uh, and what's his name, Sanders, uh, neither of them seem to be at all interested in bringing pipelines. Now, I wonder whether or not we need some great big electric generator in order to attract pipelines. But there are thousands of people throughout southern Vermont and southern uh, New England, if you will, that would love to have gas pipelines built because it wouldn't take us five minutes before we transferred from oil to, to gas. Thank you. There, there would be many pipelines that would um, support you coming out and expressing that vocally in the permitting process. I mean, we... It is challenging to build pipelines in New England. It's challenging to build pipelines anywhere, but uh, it is critical uh, as we go through the permitting process that uh, private citizens uh, and businesses step forward and express their desires because uh, the opposition uh, to pipelines, uh, the, the advocates for alternatives, uh, or anything but a gas pipeline are very vocal in today's environment. So uh, you have to get out there to get your voice heard. Isn't gas much more environmentally friendly than oil or propane? Yes. So why should environmentally friendly? I don't. I think well, we that may not be unique to people in Vermont. Then. I think we have the subject for our next conference. I'm going to hear here, and then we'll have a question there. Thank you, Richard and Michelle. My name is Kevin Easley, and I'm with the Department of Energy. And I'm just curious, from your all standpoint, given the extended low price environment we've now seen dating back to June of 2014, and really more so since November, when OPEC made their decision in 2014, for both oil and gas commodities, do you see any chill happening with respect to infrastructure investment and build-out, whether it be from pipelines 
to generation facilities since obviously there's a tremendous amount of coal retirement going on. I'm just curious, we've certainly in the LNG space globally seen uh, a pause and some cancellation of final investment decisions and projects given the, the low price environment. I'm just wondering from the gas electric integration point of view, particularly in New England where there is deficient or has been deficient infrastructure, uh, what do you see as a relationship between the extended low price environment and infrastructure build out? Do you see that being delayed or any, any thoughts you have on that would be really welcome. Thank you. Uh, as, it, as it relates, uh, I'll certainly let Richard speak more to the footprint overall, but in the MISO footprint, um, we've seen a little bit with the uncertainty of uh, CPP and the stay, uh, a little bit of a delay in some of the units that are in our interconnection queue, which certainly would probably need some infrastructure development, uh, be delayed uh, a little bit. Uh, however, we are seeing um, many of them are still, even though it might be deferred a year to three years, they're still moving forward with the need to build a new generation. Uh, we certainly think that we need to be uh, aggressive, proactive. Uh, our reserve margins, even in the Midwest, uh, are declining as much of that older coal is coming offline. Um, and so some of the pipelines, uh, as an example, bringing gas from the Utica and the Marcellus uh, are still having some issues uh, in final permitting and, and funding and the contract issues that, uh, Richard, but, but we're hopeful uh, that those projects are still going to move forward but maybe delayed a little bit. Other than that, we're not seeing that much of a delay with the ones that are already in the ground. We have one final question over here. Hi. Annalisa Kraft from Point Logic Energy. My question is um, for Mr. Cruz, your competition, Kinder Morgan, they're trying to build Northeast Energy Direct. You're trying to build Access Northeast, and then there's Constitution Pipeline. And the FERC comments, there's literally tens of thousands against these, and you have the opposition from the Massachusetts Attorney General, New York Department of Environmental conservation, et cetera, et cetera. My question is, why do you even put up with the aggravation? <laughs> and at some point, is, aren't pipelines just going to stop being built in New England? I mean, it quite seriously. Like 2018, maybe? Won't there be enough capacity available with what's being in service? Well, there's... I guess the short answer is we get paid to put up with the uh, the the burden of this, but I mean Algonquin Gas Transmission has been delivering gas into uh, New England since the 50s, so it's a long-time player and it's uh, it, it cares about the region. Uh, the projects that we're pursuing, uh, we're we're very focused on uh, staying within existing right-of-ways where possible. Uh, that minimizes, uh, doesn't eliminate, but it minimizes some of the uh, routing concerns. Uh, we, uh, we have a very extensive stakeholder outreach to make sure that parties understand how uh, we do business and how little of an impact having a gas pipeline on your property can be, and, uh, and we try to be good neighbors. Uh, 
our, our success rate, uh, despite the challenges, is, uh, is very good. I mean, we are under construction right now on a major expansion uh, on Algonquin, uh, and it's serving LDCs. We have another expansion, again, serving LDCs and some end users uh, that is working the way through the permitting process. And then this last project, Access Northeast, uh, we're in the pre-certificate phase. And, uh, you know, and the model there is that we're working with the local electric distribution companies uh, who also care about the region and who care about the competitiveness of electricity prices. And they see the benefits of bringing more gas to the region. And they're willing to be that credit-worthy entity I was talking about. Uh, the challenge is, of course, that uh, there's a lot of uh, opponents to that who are questioning whether it's a good idea for the EDCs to get back into providing that uh, backstop to capacity, even though that's what the local gas distribution companies do for gas uh, pipelines. Uh, but that's the challenge. And it gets caught up in the wind and the renewable debate. And, uh, you know, occasionally I get asked the question, I mean, is it a problem that you don't have any spare capacity? Don't you like that fact? And certainly as a pipeline, you like being full, but it does have price consequences. And uh, uh, the opportunity is by paying some more in pipeline capacity, uh, you can have a dramatic impact on the electric price. And that, in our opinion, is beneficial for the entire region. Well, it's obvious that this is a situation in which the issues do not revolve around technology, but revolve around political will. Um, and it just goes to the adage that you can lead the public to a technology, but you can't make them utilize it. Um, so this is going to be, I think, an issue that's going to come up more and more, and it's going to become more and more of a, of, a, of a major focus for discussion, both in the political sphere, but also, I think, too, in thinking about the economic futures, the economic futures of regions which don't have access to that kind of, that kind of natural gas resources and the, and the potential for power that they represent. I want to thank both of our panelists for a marvelous presentation. Thank you.